Global coronavirus infections falling dramatically, the U.S. reporting the lowest number of daily COVID-19 cases since March of 2020. Worldwide infections for the week that ended on Sunday were also the lowest in almost three months. So certainly some good news when it comes to coronavirus. Joining us now is Dr. Rachel Drew, board certified doctor of natural medicine, also the CEO and co-founder of Modi Health. It's a virtual health and wellness company. Uh, Dr. Drew, thanks so much for, for joining us. How are you this afternoon? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Good to hear. Take us take us into what the last 14 months have, have been like for you and, and, and for Modi Health. I mean, give us an idea of just how much business has increased because of the pandemic. Well, uh, we've seen a dramatic increase of users and patients on our platform. Obviously, during the pandemic, when things were shut down and people were staying in, Having access to virtual care as well as virtual health and well-being support was critically important. So the pandemic has really um, skyrocketed us and really expanded our our platform significantly over the last 14 months. Dr. Du, Dr. Du, are you um, are you offering vaccinations? No, we're not. We're a truly virtual. Truly, 100 percent. I mean, not even hybrid. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we are a virtual platform that offers virtual care with every type of practitioner you could possibly want. So you can really get a holistic approach, everything from traditional primary care to mental health to complementary alternative life coaches, nutrition, as well as a streaming service and health memberships that allow a holistic approach to getting the support, guidance and tools you need. I'm I'm really curious about the holistic approach because one thing that the pandemic has done among the many things is it's it's shown us the disparities uh, between many different types of people in the US and around the world and indeed we've seen those with higher uh, comor- comorbidities suffer worse fates when they do get sick with coronavirus and I'm wondering if you can speak to the way that you perhaps think that we may start to actually think differently about taking a holistic approach to medicine on the other side of the pandemic It's such a critically important issue right now. You're absolutely right. People are really looking at their health from a different perspective. You know, what we're seeing at Modi Health and really within the industry of health and well-being care is a higher level of interest and attention to preventative health and wellness, including mental health. And the pandemic's really created a significant amount of stress and emotional strain on so many who are now also in need of mental and emotional health support. And you're completely correct when you're talking about the need for a holistic approach, more inclusive um, abilities and access to people of all different backgrounds. And that's one of the reasons why a virtual health platform is such such a timely and important need right now within the industry. So having virtual access really does create more accessibility to people, being able, no matter what type of income level or background that you are, being able to have access to whole person care to really optimize your health and well-being, not only during the era of COVID, decreasing risk of getting COVID or becoming extremely ill from COVID, but also on the other side of the pandemic to really optimize your health and well-being so that you can experience health, wellness, and really thrive as a human being is so important. 
But there is still this technological gap between many people in the United States. And we saw that really play out when it came to the way that people were scheduling and given access to vaccines. There were many people in the U.S. who didn't necessarily have the technological know-how in order to schedule those appointments. And I'm wondering how you account for that with a, a, a telemedicine service. Absolutely. Yes, I, I mean, I can relate to that. I had to assist my own parents yeah. in trying to schedule their vaccinations. It was unfortunately, you know, a system that was rolled out very quickly. It was an emergency, um, you know, response. And so it wasn't necessarily set up in the most um, accessible way to those who were elderly or those who didn't have access to a computer or a, a smartphone, for example. So when it comes to platforms like ours, Um, Really, all you need is Internet access, and it's as simple and easy to use as something like a Facebook, right? So being able, when it comes to health technology, to make it more accessible, it's not only about having access to the physical platform, right? So that's Mm -hmm. Internet connectivity. But you really have to be designing the user experience for people of all different technology levels and skills, right? So in order for those who are older to be able to use these types of um, future, more futuristic or the direction that we're moving towards in healthcare and well-being, using more virtual, using more high technology, we've got to build that out and create that with the user in mind and really meeting them where they are at their technical and skill set levels and being able to help them to have access in simple and effective ways. Dr. Dew, we only have about 20 seconds left, but give me an idea of some of the questions that you and your team are getting now as things start to open back up and vaccinations continue to roll out. 20 seconds. Yeah. So for those who are already fully vaccinated, we're seeing that, you know, the idea of getting back to normal life is really exciting. And the questions that we're getting are really focusing on preventative measures to staying healthy. Moving forward is a higher priority than it was pre-pandemic. And so people are really reassessing what it what it means to be healthy mentally, emotionally, physically. I can certainly I can certainly relate to that. Dr. Rachel Dew is board certified doctor of natural medicine, also CEO and co-founder of Modi health joins us on the phone from los angeles well there are a few ways to get to space you can of course become an astronaut you could pay millions of dollars to hitch a ride or you could be jeff bezos who said earlier today on instagram of all places that next month he's going to space when his company blue origin launches its first passenger carrying mission let's get right into it with ed ludlow who's auto reporter and covers all things space and technology at bloomberg news he joins us from the bloomberg 960 a.m studio in san francisco ed you know when you think about going to space and, and 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 hitching a ride on on a rocket ship you maybe are saying okay well i'll do it but i don't necessarily want to be the first one jeff bezos not so much Yeah, I mean, you know, his Blue Origin company have done 15 consecutive successful tests, but all of those tests have one thing in common. They didn't carry any humans. Um, So I was joking a bit earlier with our colleague, Matt Miller. I don't know whether it's a case of putting your money where your mouth is or your mouth where your money is, if you know what I mean. Um, (laughs) This will be the debut passenger flight for Blue Origin. You you have to understand what kind of a a mission it is. It's an 11 minute trip up to the Kármán line. That's around 62 miles above Earth, 100 kilometers. It goes through that launch sequence that we're familiar with, with Blue Origin and SpaceX, where it takes off and over the series of a few minutes, the capsule that the rocket 
rockets carrying separates it has a brief period in low earth orbit where it then kind of falls back down to earth and lands safely with a parachute so it's not kind of deep space exploration we're talking about it'll be jeff bezos his brother mark bezos and then the eventual winner of an auction and the the bid right now is at 2.8 million but it's open until mid-june at which point it becomes a one-off live auction the highest bid wins. So you'd expect that number to go up, right? 2.8 million to go to space. Seems plus, like a bargain. It does. And plus to get a little FaceTime with Jeff Bezos, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Ed, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering specifically about the billionaire space race here. Uh, Richard yeah. Branson has, has Virgin Galactic. Uh, of course, Elon Musk has SpaceX. How significant is it that, that Bezos is, is the first among the billionaires? It's significant and it's a complicated story because all of those companies, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin and SpaceX, they all have slightly different long term aims and they also have different success so far. So, as I said, this is Blue Origin has done 15 consecutive successful tests, but none of them carrying humans. So Jeff Bezos will be the first billionaire into low Earth orbit. But if you compare that with SpaceX's ambitions and what they've already achieved to to date, they are significantly ahead, right? They've done more than 125 flights using Falcon rocket. They've done around 15 test flights of different heights and static fire tests with Starship. Their ambitions are much greater. By the fourth quarter of this year, they want to do a multi-day trip with the CEO of Shift for Payments, for example, where he and some other passengers will literally go into orbit for, for a 24-hour period, um, if not longer. Um, you know, they, they aim to do SpaceX, this is to do a lunar orbit by 2023 using Starship. That lunar orbit by SpaceX is even more ambitious than NASA's own ambitions to get real astronauts to the moon. Um, and, and then in the middle somewhere, you have Virgin, Galac- Virgin Galactic, where their billionaire owner, Richard Branson, should be the first passenger sometime later this summer. But that's a different kind of trajectory that that, that vehicle takes. It's more like kind of taking a leapfrog from a commercial jetliner, an aeroplane into very low Earth orbit. Um, so you have to kind of put that into context. Ed, what's the, the ultimate goal for, for Blue Origin and how it's different from SpaceX and from Virgin Galactic? Yeah, it, it's actually very much the same. I mean, their business is split up in the same way that SpaceX is. Uh-huh. That They have the payload side of the business, rockets that carry things into space for third parties, and they have the space travel, the space tourism side. Um, you know, for SpaceX's part, a lot of what we see when we do these launches on a weekly basis, that is Falcon carrying Starlink satellites or it's carrying payloads for NASA like last week. But their ambition is very clear. All of that stuff is secondary to human travel to Mars. Elon Musk has been really consistent on that. And it may be some time away, but he says that that is the mission statement for SpaceX. Ed, last question. If given the opportunity, would you do it? I would. I have the same answer to this every time. I actually respect Elon Musk, who says that he would happily die on Mars, just not on impact. That's his, his <laughs> quote, right? So he wants to make sure that the technology works to get there safely yeah. and he doesn't die in a crash landing. And I, I would like to see some uh, success before I sign okay, up. Okay, well, I'll be behind you. That's Ed Ludlow, auto reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from the Bloomberg 960 AM studio in San Francisco. Well, a story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine focuses on what are called the sedition hunters amateur internet sleuths who've turned Washington, D.C.'s insurrection on January 6th into the ultimate online manhunt. Joining us now is politics editor for Bloomberg Businessweek, Amanda Hurley. She's on. The, she's from joining us from Washington, D.C. And David Yaffe Bellany, legal reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington. Amanda, it's hard to believe that it has been five months uh, since the, the insurrection. And one thing that that 
just stands out to me about it is how much video footage there was of the event, watching it play out in real time here at work and then also afterward. And it turns out that this army of internet sleuths has used that footage to focus on finding and then sending to the FBI those who were responsible. Yeah, that's right. Um, as you said, there was no no shortage of, uh, of footage uh, as well as photos and social media posts uh, from that day. Uh, so, you know, it was so much raw material for uh, these, uh, you know, amateur sleuths to dig into and um, to, to kind of try to, uh, you know, piece together and cross-reference as they were trying to create their own picture of exactly what, what happened uh, that day and um, tried to kind of identify uh, some of the people responsible. David, uh, how successful have these loosely affiliated group of people been? I think they've been very successful. I mean, the, re- the way I became aware of these efforts was I'm, I spend a lot of my days pouring through the arrest affidavits that are released every time somebody is charged for their involvement in the Capitol riot. And you periodically see the feds reference the sort of um, online manhunting efforts of these sleuths in those official court papers, you know, saying we were able to put together evidence to identify this person because so-and-so on, on Twitter made this discovery. And so that's a sort of powerful testament to how successful these, these groups have been. Well, as you point out in the piece, David, they, they don't have a, a, a perfect record when it comes to trying to identify people online. And, and you include an anecdote in your piece from the Boston Marathon bombers. And it's one that I remembered as well of, of, of suspects being misidentified. Um, what have they done to try to alleviate that risk a little bit? Yeah, so I think as these sorts of crowd hunting efforts have sort of grown in, in maturity as the Internet has evolved over the last decade, you've seen people sort of develop uh, rules of the road for for, for these types of initiatives. And so some of the main Twitter accounts that kind of organize and mobilize uh, sedition hunting work urge their followers not to actually post the name of anybody online. You know, Mm. if you work out their name, report that directly to the FBI is what these, these groups advise. And, you know, of course, there have been moments over the last few months where, you know, sedition hunters have deviated from that and have misidentified people publicly. It's impossible to control everyone. But I think over, overall, um, the group has done a pretty, pretty good job of, of stopping misidentifications from happening and sort of channeling these efforts in a more responsible way. Amanda, what is it that, that motivates this, this group of people? Well, it seems like they have somewhat diverse motivations. Um, for some of them, you know, honestly, being at a loose end during the pandemic, uh, you know, was part of it. Uh, people were at home, uh, you know, kind of cooped up. Uh, some people were out of work. And this was a project that they could uh, really throw themselves into. Uh, and, you know, obviously, people felt uh, uh I think many of them felt a strong motivation uh, toward justice and uh, the sense that, uh, you know, they they wanted to see these people brought to justice. And uh, I think one of them said, you know, not just a token group either. You know, we, we want to see them, you know, everyone responsible brought to justice. Um, 
So, uh, you know, some of them feel, I, I think, uh, angrier or more passionate than, than others, but uh, it's, it's a mix of motivations. David, I was surprised to, to read in the piece uh, the reaction uh, that, that one of these online sleuths had after he used technology to identify a, a podcaster from, from Washington who was later charged for his role in the siege. This person pleaded not guilty, um, but the, the person who identified him had some, uh, some sympathy for him. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's a, I think that's an unusual reaction. First of all, I think that most of the sedition hunters doing this type of work probably don't sympathize that much with the people that they're turning into the feds. But I think that particular case kind of illustrates the sort of intimacy of this kind of kind of work. Um, you know, uh, when you're when you're tracking somebody online and learning as much as you can about them in order to figure out if they're actually the person in, in, in the photo, that's a kind of sort of intimate experience and you might get a sense of them as a fuller and more nuanced individual than you would if you just, you know, read the, the court papers describing what they've done on, on January 6th at the Capitol. So I think that's a little a little bit explains what was what was going on there. It's also certainly the case that you know, these people, the, the sort of online sleuths, uh, you know, under, understand that, you know, there were sort of bigger forces at play motivating the people who went to the Capitol. And a lot of them lay more blame at the feet of President Trump and his, his allies than they do it, you know, at the individuals who actually showed up. Um, so I think it's that kind of combination of factors which produces that sort of uh, uh, surprising reaction. David, you mentioned that the, the, the court papers that you look through sometimes cited uh, the, these folks who have spent so much time online trying to identify these insurrectionists. And, and I'm wondering how law enforcement officials feel about that. Um, I think they're, they're grateful. Um, I mean, when you talk to the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, they're, they're constantly banging the drum of we need tips from the public. We need the public to help us as much as they can to identify these people because this is an investigation of really unprecedented scope. And there were so many people who showed up at the Capitol that day um, that, you know, any any help the government can get, I think, is is, is really appreciated. Um, you know, obviously the government has investigative resources that an ordinary person doesn't have, um, but there were still so many people involved in the investigation so complex that, uh, that, that the help of this sort of crowdsourcing effort is pretty important. Amanda, I, I just want to end talking a little bit about um, what the vice president of the ADL, Orrin Siegel, uh, told David, um, that it could potentially set up a dangerous precedent here. Um, what did he mean by that? Yeah, I, I think um, touching on what uh, you and David were talking about earlier, uh, you know, about uh, the potential for misfires, yeah. right? And for, um, you know, putting uh, people's personal information out in the public domain. Uh, and, you know, because of uh, the unwieldy power of the internet, you sort of never really know what's going to happen. I mean, um, and uh, it can definitely expose people to risks, uh, whether they're, uh, uh, you know, guilty or innocent. Right. So you just have to be really, really careful about that. Well, it's a fantastic story, and it's available in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Amanda Hurley, politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. David Yaffe Bellany, legal reporter for Bloomberg News. Well, barely a week after the murder of George Floyd last year, SoftBank created the Opportunity Fund. This was a commitment to invest $100 million in companies led by underrepresented racial minorities. And here we are a little over a year later, and SoftBank has already allocated half of the cash, and the company anticipates creating a second fund 
by the end of the year. Joining us now is Sarah McBride, a venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Sarah, I was just reading from your your story right there about SoftBank's Opportunity Fund. What are the companies that it's so far uh, committed to supporting? Well, it has a bunch, and they're super diverse. Um, In its portfolio are tons of companies from all around the um, country. There is a healthcare um, company that I spoke to for my fund. There's um, uh, a company that um, develops software for people operations called Gather. There are um, some education companies, really anything you can imagine in a diverse venture uh, capital fund, the difference being that all the founders represent uh, minorities that have had trouble attracting venture capital traditionally. Yeah, and, and these are these are um, minority entrepreneurs traditionally, as you point out in your piece, have, have rarely had access to, to seed capital. Um, you have this statistic that is absolutely startling here. Of those who received venture capital from the years 1990 to 2016, only 4.2% were black or Hispanic. That's according to a Harvard Business School study. Does it look like that it's getting any better? I'd have to say, given all the initiatives that started last year, it has to be getting better. Um, The reason I looked at this a year later was I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just talk, that all the people who had come out and promised to focus on this issue were, in fact, doing so. And I'd say that spending down or allocating half of a $100 million fund in a year is a really good sign of progress. They weren't the only ones. They were just the largest. And I checked up on some of the others that also appear to be following through on their promises from last year. So I think a a difference is being made. And SoftBank told me, I spoke to a partner, Shu Niata, who's Uh, taking the initiative on the Opportunity Fund. And he told me he thinks the biggest difference can be made at the seed and Series A stages, in other words, the very earliest stages, and that by giving money to such young companies, they hope that it'll make a difference down the line. So I think we'll only be able to measure success in a few years, but... There's a big effort. Yeah, and as it goes with venture capital, right? The idea that right. is is and and look, and this is the the idea with venture capital is you you support a lot of a lot of companies early on in their development, and by definition, many of them will not work out, and it's the home runs that end up being grand slams, right? Exactly. One of the more interesting. Uh, firms that I spoke to um, comes out of Atlanta. It's called Collab Capital. And it's led by investors, including Barry Givens. And he was taking a non-traditional spin on venture capital and saying, look, the problem with underinvestment in black-run firms isn't just the companies that aspire to be unicorns and grow into billion-dollar businesses. It's also just regular businesses around the neighborhood. They're having trouble getting capital, too. So he's for his firm, taking a look at companies that maybe aspire to just have a few million dollars in revenue too, and also allocating money to them and just accepting. So 
some of the companies in my portfolio will never grow to be unicorns, but we need those companies too, which I thought was a great approach. His fund is $50 million. You also allude to the possibility of uh, creating a a second fund by the end of the year. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, at SoftBank, they feel that it's going pretty well, that they're making a difference. They've uh, found all these businesses to invest in, and they want to raise more capital to keep going down this path. So they can either get that just from SoftBank or work with other companies that also have this commitment. And so they're exploring opportunities now and thinking about, should we bring in other corporates or other interested parties? Should we keep just doing it on our own? And I think these we'll have the answers to these questions uh, by the end of the year. Yeah, and I, I wonder, too, uh, about other venture capital firms um, and other venture capitalists doing something similar. You talked a little bit about those. Right. So um, there's, for example, the uh, Collab Capital Mm -hmm. that I mentioned, and then there are um, some other initiatives. Uh, Lawrence Lenahan out of New York is um, running funding just for uh, black entrepreneurs who are interested in fashion, for example, that initiative is going ahead. There's um, Define, there are a bunch of others, as well as initiatives to focus on getting more historically black colleges investing in these funds, some of which have really good returns and endowments of these institutions haven't traditionally invested in venture. So it's happening on both ends. So that speaks to your point of whether or not SoftBank is going to tap its outside connections to raise the money or, or use the part of the, the coffers that it already has. Right. So SoftBank is, is one of the biggest companies in the world. It has unlimited coffers. So it could just keep funding it itself or it could bring in other corporates, which could have strategic advantages for the companies that enter the um, fund that they're backing because right now these young companies, I I spoke to a couple of them, are just bowled over by all the doors that SoftBank can open for them, mostly other companies in the SoftBank portfolio. And if other corporates were doing that too, it could be great for some of these young companies. We'll talk a little bit about that because, you know, raising money, especially from SoftBank, and you're the venture capital reporter here at Bloomberg News, so you're the best person to speak to about this. It's much more than just a venture capital firm providing funding to a company. Venture capitalists uh, make introductions. They connect them with other portfolio companies. They can help get them really good employees. I mean, what is the role that a venture capital firm takes in 2021? Right. So I spoke to a company called Vitable, which is a healthcare startup based near Philadelphia. So for this founder, it wasn't just the cash. He spoke to me at length about the introductions SoftBank's making. So Vitable is trying to create uh, more access to healthcare insurance for people who don't have a ton of money to spend on healthcare, and they are using online healthcare and home visits by healthcare providers. So creating a network of providers. So SoftBank was able to introduce him to executives from the insurance company Lemonade, which is also in the 
SoftBank Arena, and they spoke to him about insurance and building up insurance programs. He got to speak to GoPuff, the delivery startup, about creating a network. And also one of the investment partners at the Opportunity Fund is Stacey Brown-Philpott, the woman who used to run TaskRabbit. So he got to speak to her as well. And um, that's just invaluable for a young company. Yeah. And I encourage everybody to check out Sarah's piece. It's called SoftBank Fund puts $50 million in black and Latinx-led startups. Sarah McBride is venture capital reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Indeed it is. 3.49 on Wall Street, just over 10 minutes until the markets close on this Monday, June 7th. Tim Stenebeck with Bloomberg Business Week. And joining us now is Jay Littman, the co-founder and president of Ethic, approximately $1 billion in assets under management. Jay joins us uh, again uh, on the phone from New York City. Jay, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you doing? Tim, fantastic to be here. Thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Um, you know, June kicks off Pride. And we wanted to have you on the show because Ethic is a sustainable asset manager, and you're doing something in honor of, of, of Pride Month. Uh, you're helping investors allocate capital toward companies that are supporting LGBTQIA plus communities. How are you doing it? Well, here at Ethic, we you know work with investors to help them align their portfolios with the biggest priorities that they feel matter to them. So that can be things like climate, deforestation, human rights, racial justice. But LGBTQ plus is a huge priority for so many of our investors. And so we use data to understand, you know, fundamentally which companies in our portfolios are either hurting or helping this community, either through the way that they treat their employees or their communities or through the products that they sell and how they actually go about selling them to the broader world. So we look at a number of different issues and factors to understand which companies are going to be on either side of that equation and then look to build a portfolio to reflect that. So what are the companies that do support this? Well, it's companies that are making an explicit commitment to actually putting things like anti-discriminatory behavior in their policies and procedures, right? As it currently stands in the US, over half of the state's in this country don't actually provide explicit protections for the LGBTQ community, which means that it is actually up to companies, many of the companies in our portfolios, to actually come out and explicitly tell their community, their investors, their um, employees, that this is something that they prioritize and this is something that they are going to um, put in their documentation to ensure that uh, bias in the hiring, firing process, in promotions, in compensation is not something that's going to be uh, taken on uh, at those businesses. And what are some companies that aren't doing this? I mean, can you talk about individual companies that you find that would not meet the rubric? We don't typically name specific companies in this format, just from a compliance perspective. Um, but uh, we can talk about a lot of the behaviors. Uh, yeah, some ta- of the, yeah, talk you know, about those. Companies do. No, of course. I mean, it's not just, you know, the internal policies with employees. You know, what we seek to understand is all of the behaviors that companies actually um, have that can, again, 
help or harm this community. And, you know, some of those things are more obvious, like anti-discriminatory policies and procedures, whether they have protections for domestic partners uh, providing equal benefits, whether they have, um, you know, additional benefits for the trans community, for additional, um, you know, medical coverage that may be required. But there's also, you know, things that these companies do that might seem innocuous that are highly important Mm. to, you know, solving this issue, right? So something like data security and privacy. Right. That may Mm -hmm. seem really unrelated and it may seem really innocuous as it relates to this. But if you think about the fact that, you know, 10 to 12 to 15 countries around the world actually make it punishable by death to be a member of the LGBTQ community publicly, it means that individuals in those countries are most likely living privately, most likely keeping this part of themselves secret. And if they are living privately and if they're living, um, you know, online and being uh, this part of who they are, uh, online, then if that information is hacked, if it is leaked, then it is a matter of life and death. So what companies actually have good enough data security and privacy to protect this information and ensure that, you know, this community in those countries is actually protected and safe? What about investor demand for a product like this? What was it that that, that made you realize that this was an opportunity for ethic? Well, you know, a really important part of our process in working with our clients is going through a really rigorous experience that we call the values mapping exercise to understand which issues matter to our investors, because so much of what we do is personalized to each specific investor. And so what we do is we create like a mission statement or, you know, a map of what it is that people are actually prioritizing. And you'll see some issues come up more than others. You know, you see climate is very popular. You see human rights, racial justice. But what we found is that LGBTQ, right, LGBTQ plus rights is a fundamental human right. This is, you know, um, uh, this is something that so many of our clients have actually told us that they do want to prioritize. And it's also an issue that we here at the company prioritize uh, from a personal basis. So we made it a priority early on to actually think about this issue at a systemic level, looking at the issues that are really important, like anti-discriminatory policies, as we discussed, but also looking at the additional factors like data privacy, like firearms, like these other Mm. behaviors that matter so much. I know from a compliance perspective, you probably have to be very careful in, 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 in what you can say, but, but can you take me into and take our audience into the way that you think about different themes and, and potentially new themes that, that you, you would come up with for, for portfolios or products? Yeah, I mean, you know, the themes is an interesting way to put it because, you know, if you were to be a sustainable investor 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the priorities change. Right. So in the last three or four years, we've seen issues like deforestation get a lot more popular because of the increased prevalence of wildfires. Right. Last year, we saw racial justice get a huge amount of demand from our client base. But that was something that we had prioritized since we founded the business. And so what we do is we provide additional resources into thinking about how to address these things at a systemic level by looking at how you know, companies are actually interacting with these issues, either making them better or either making them worse, right? So again, with an issue like LGBTQ plus rights, we're looking at, you know, which behaviors that might not necessarily seem that obvious, but are truly systemic are actually going to support this community. With something like racial justice, again, we want to look beyond diversity and inclusion, which is very important. We want to look at the systemic issues like private prison, like predatory Mm. lending, like environmental racism, to see which companies are truly actually going to make the situation better or worse as it pertains to the theme, you know, per your question. 
Hey Jay, I want to just take a step back and, and think about the market in a, and, and have your your comments on the market in a, in a bigger way. And that we, now that we've touched on uh, what what you've been up to at, at Ethics since we last spoke, I, I'm wondering what you make of where the trade is and where the trade has been happening uh, over the last six weeks or so. Uh, our colleagues at Bloomberg News spoke to Janet Yellen yesterday, and she said that higher interest rates would be a plus for the U.S. What do you make of that? Well, I think that. You know, the theme that we see, whether it's in the last four weeks, six weeks, six months, six years, is that investors are being more intentional about their investments and they are demanding more information about how their portfolio is going to be affected by either these idiosyncratic market events or just longer term themes in the Mm. economy. Right. Is there going to be an increased uh, idiosyncratic impact? based on you know the larger part of the portfolio or are the companies in the portfolio going to be more impacted by an economy that is driving more towards renewable energy more towards the systemic shift and are people positioned correctly so for us it's about you know having that intention with our investors to recognize that they can put uh, personalize their portfolios to potentially insulate themselves from the risks that come from an uh, either those short-term events or those long-term events, but we're just seeing investors being more demanding of intentional portfolios that are actually going to be insulated from them rather than being you know, more passive and, and, and kind of staying in traditional index investments, for example. AJ, just in the last 20 seconds, are, are you at the point where you're openly communicating with companies about what they need to be pushing, uh, pushing for internally? So our investors are able to participate through, you know, proxy voting, yeah. to engage with the companies that are in the portfolio. And that's a really important part of the process that we provide companies. But, you know, we did just cross a billion dollar threshold, which is very important to us and our community. But right. as we continue to get larger, we're going to be engaging more, especially as we have more weight and assets behind us. Jay Lipman, it is always a pleasure. Jay is co-founder and president of Ethic, approximately a billion dollars in assets under management. He joins us from New York City.